Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. When last we met, dear listener, gangster Mickey McDonald had just been fingered for one of the most notorious murders in Toronto's history by none other than his longtime pal and partner in crime, John R. Shea. But if there's one rule to live by in the criminal underworld, it's never be a snitch. The clock is ticking on these two former friends, as every echelon of the Ontario criminal justice system bands together to take down Mickey McDonald once and for all. In the end, it might just be the events of a small town bank robbery in Port Credit that seals his fate. In today's conclusion, the Mad Dog of Jarvis Street is rechristened Canada's Most Wanted Criminal. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential, Episode 12, The Public Enemy Part 2, Mickey's Adventures in Gangland. Last time on Mississauga Confidential, we heard all about the bumbling band of bandits made up of Alex McDonald, Leo Gautier, and John R. Shea, who robbed the Bank of Commerce in Port Credit. Then, a group of four gun-toting gangsters knocked off Toronto bookie James Windsor inside his Briar Hill Avenue home in front of his entire family. Shea had quickly been arrested for the Port Credit holdup and immediately asked to cut a deal with the police in exchange for knowledge about Mickey's involvement with the Windsor murder. But why? Let's dig a little deeper. By all accounts, the murder of James Windsor was enacted by a single trigger-happy gunsel who'd surprised his fellow thieves by shooting Jimmy square in the gut. In the eyes of the law, however, this did nothing to diminish the other three men's culpability in his murder. According to the Criminal Code of Canada, all four of the men who'd entered the Windsor home on January 7, 1939, with the common intention to commit a crime, in this case robbery and murder, were just as guilty as the man who'd pulled the trigger. If Shea was indeed present on Briar Hill the night of the murder, he was staring down a murder rap. What followed Shea's arrest on January 21st was a domino effect that could only have been caused by two factors. One, Shea copping to the Port Credit robbery and to being one of the Windsor murderers, and two, the Crown Attorney, with the approval of the Attorney General of Ontario, granting Shea full immunity for both crimes. Generally, an open-and-shut case such as the Port Credit bank robbery would never have attracted the attention of the province's highest officer of the law. But Attorney General Gordon Conant suddenly became personally involved in the proceedings of a suburban bank robbery trial. How is it that such a lofty individual came to be invested in the lives of a bunch of lowly hoods from the corner? For one thing, only the Attorney General had the power to bestow immunity on a witness in cases of murder. For another, he wanted Mickey McDonald wiped out, too. The very next day after Shea's arrest, on January 22nd, 
A police identification parade was organized at Toronto Police Headquarters. Hitherto, in the two weeks after the murder, Toronto Police had indiscriminately rounded up handfuls of suspects, and a series of lineups had been presented to the eyewitnesses to the Windsor murder. This was Toronto Police shaking the trees, but the arrests bore no fruit. On this day, however, in addition to ten of the requisite decoys present in the lineup were the four men who were likely to have been present at James Windsor's murder. John Shea, our resident rat, Louis Gallo, a career thief, Alex McDonald, Shea's partner in the poor credit robbery, and Mickey's brother, and none other than the top-billed star of this sordid soap opera, Mickey McDonald. The cops had gotten the band back together again, and it could only have been done with a furtive assist from John R. Shea. As the eyewitnesses from 247 Briar Hill Avenue once again shuffled into the long, narrow lineup room, Toronto police detectives were confident that they would have the positive IDs necessary to secure a murder conviction. The eyewitnesses, however, had a different plan altogether. For the past two weeks, the eyewitnesses had been sequestered in the same Briar Hill home where they'd bore witness to the murder of a beloved family member. They had to eat their meals in the same kitchen where Jimmy had been shot. They had to walk through the same hallway where he'd been beaten and then died. And they had to walk up the same stairs where a gunman had marched them into a bedroom to threaten their lives. Fresh in their minds, too, was the final warning from the blue-eyed gunman to keep their traps shut. They knew too much, and that knowledge could get them all killed. Today, these poor souls would be seen as equal victims of the crime against Jimmy Windsor and been given support or counseling. In those days, there weren't such concerns. Caged in the murder house, with only their fears and their police guards to keep them company, all they could do was rely on each other to get themselves out of the mess they were in. Together, they cooked up a cockeyed plan. The family agreed that, were they to lay eyes on their assailants in the police lineup, they would not give positive identifications in full earshot of the criminals. Instead, they would keep quiet and convene privately once safe back at home. It was a decision that would have a grievous impact on the Crown's case against Jimmy's murderers. One by one, the five eyewitnesses were led into the lineup room. One by one, the parade of criminals stared back at them with only a hanging sheet of mesh dividing them. One by one, the witnesses recognized the man who'd shot Jimmy standing there in the lineup. And one by one, the witnesses stayed true to their secret pact. Each one left the lineup without telling detectives that they just looked Jimmy's murderer dead in the eyes. It was only when they were gathered back at home on Briar Hill that they all agreed to inform police that they'd seen Jimmy's killer that day. They didn't know it yet, but that man's name was Mickey McDonald. On February 23, 1939, over a month after the police lineup, Mickey McDonald and his little brother Alex were arrested and officially charged with the murder of James Windsor. Conspicuously absent from prosecution was John Shea. The fourth man, Louis Gallo, was also not charged, 
presumably due to lack of evidence. With their arrests, the murder blew up in the papers again, elbowing the Academy Awards and the antics of a certain mustachioed dictator to the bottom of the front page. From that point on, Mickey was on a first-name basis with the Canadian newspapers, a sign of familiarity not afforded any Rooney, Spillane, or Mouse. At the preliminary hearings in March 1939, defense and prosecution faced off. Stepping up to the plate for the prosecution was York County Crown Attorney James McFadden. Heading Mickey's defense was Ace Defense Attorney Frank Regan. One of the most famous and successful defense lawyers in Canada, Regan was the first phone call members of the Toronto underworld made when a situation of incarceration called for a masterful mouthpiece. He wasn't just a dogged debater for his client's innocence inside the courtroom. Outside the courtroom, he was a crusader for a fair justice system. He believed that the odds were stacked against the accused, and he was one of the only guys in town ready to go to bat for them. Regan was right about the playing field being far from level. The Crown had had over a month to prepare their case against the McDonald brothers in secret. The preliminary hearing was the defense's first and only chance to see the evidence against them before the real trial began. The defense braced itself for any surprises the prosecution had up its sleeve. The prosecution did not disappoint when they blindsided the defense with a surprise witness plucked from Mickey's own inner circle. Though Mickey might have smelled a rat up to that point, he was able to put a face to the smell when John R. Shea stepped up to the witness box to tell his tale. According to Shea, the murder of James Windsor was a case of robbery gone wrong. Mickey and Alex had gone to Windsor's Briar Hill home with a singular purpose of relieving the bookie of as much of his money as they could. What should have been a simple robbery, however, had turned to murder when Windsor's defiant tone had brought out the mad dog and Mickey. Shea kept on singing his tune. If there was a dangerous cocktail of desperation and panic fueling Mickey's actions that night, it was because of a ticking clock. The murder of James Windsor went down on January 7th, just three days before Mickey was to go on trial for robbery and assault in the James C. Elder break-in. Mickey needed money, in this case, money stolen from James Windsor, to pay for his defense at the Elder trial. After years of unintentionally working pro bono, Frank Regan, Mickey's go-to defender, now demanded a $50 deposit up front from his clients. Criminals, after all, were notoriously bad at paying their bills. Without the dough to secure Regan's services, it was a cinch that Mickey would be back behind bars in no time flat. Shea recounted how Mickey tried and spectacularly failed to illegally obtain the funds for his legal fees in the days leading up to the Windsor murder. On January 3rd, less than a week before the murder, Mickey, Shea, and Leo Gautier hopped a train to Ottawa to rob a bank farther afield. Toronto had been too hot for him, and Mickey couldn't risk being caught stealing while out on bail, so he opted to take his show on the road. 
eagle-eared listeners, adept at spotting patterns, will have noticed that the light motif of these capers is the sheer ineptitude of these criminals. This instance, too, follows that pattern with cliched consistency. Instead of getting down to the business of thievery, the men spent their time in our nation's capital getting soused and enjoying the company of a couple of good-time gals. By the time their spree was over, they'd frittered away all their spending money and Gauthier had to beg his parents for the train fare back to Toronto. With Mickey deeper in the red than when he'd started, he was even more desperate for cash. The very next day, James Windsor was murdered. The most burning question for the defense was just how Shea came to have all this incriminating evidence implicating Mickey in the Windsor murder. It seemed that the only way he could have so much straight dope was if he was present at the murder. Shea had an answer for that too. According to him, 30 minutes after the murder had taken place on January 7th, Mickey greeted Shea at the door of his Ossington hideout with the suspiciously damning proclamation, I have killed a man. Mickey and Alex then entered the apartment and argued over the details of the crime with Shea as their captive audience. The magistrate had heard enough. The McDonald brothers would go on trial together for the murder of James Windsor. Luckily for Mickey, another bank job would not be required to pay Frank Regan's legal fees. In capital cases, defense fees were covered by the province. On May 2, 1939, the trial of Alex and Mickey McDonald for the murder of James Windsor began. Shea took the stand again to share his tidy story of the crime that he definitely wasn't a part of, this time to an avid gang-fearing jury. It all seemed pretty cut and dry, except when Shea started to bungle the details in his testimony. For Shea's story to hold water, he needed to edit out two entire participants who had been reported in the newspapers, leaving only Alex and Mickey in his heavily embroidered account. One of those participants was a green fedora donning career thief named Louis Gallo. According to Shea, Gallo was one of the two men who'd rushed forward to help search Windsor's dying body for cash and valuables. Later, he made off with Jimmy's jewelry. Gallo perfectly fit the profile of the fourth man, as reported in the newspapers, but the Windsor family hadn't picked out his photo or identified him at the lineup, so the prosecution wanted any mention of Gallo on the cutting room floor, lest a weak identification of Gallo weaken the whole case against Mickey. Shea hastened to fill the Louis Gallo-shaped gaps in his story, but, in the process, botched the date of a secret meeting he'd had with Gallo, as he attempted to transmogrify it into a secret meeting he'd had with Mickey instead. Objection! Regan cried. At the time Shea claimed the meeting had taken place, Mickey had already been locked up in Don Jail. It was a police-verified alibi, tight as a cinched girdle, and it poked a hole right through the testimony of the prosecution's star witness. Frank Regan continued to pounce on Shea's stumbles, accusing the police of cutting a deal with Shea and coaching the eyewitnesses to pick out Mickey and Alex, two Scots, in the police lineup 
after Windsor's family had initially told police on the scene that the intruders had looked Italian. If everything was on the up and up, then Regan wanted to see a copy of the statement Shea made to police on the day of his arrest. The Crown told the court that no such statement existed. Well, then Regan wanted to see the notes taken down by the detectives who'd arrested Shea. The Crown hemmed and hawed, until finally the notes were handed over, but with large portions redacted. Only Shea signed statement, a police-summarized version of Shea's account, made weeks after his arrest, and only signed by Shea, was made available to the defense. Throughout the trial, Attorney General Gordon Conant continued to take a hands-on approach to the proceedings, at times making rare personal appearances inside the courtroom. The sight of the Attorney General seated up front with the counsel for the Crown was like Henry Ford tightening lug nuts on the assembly line. It was work far below his pay grade, and Conant himself admitted to reporters that his presence was unusual. For the defense, it was another sign that the fix was in for Mickey McDonald. In between the legal wrangling of the courtroom proceedings, newspaper editors found spare ink to explore the lighter side of the case. They luxuriated in printing photos of Mickey and Kitty Cat, a couple of handsome, fresh-faced kids who just happened to be Canada's first couple of crime. Photos of Mickey being dragged to and from the courtroom in his best suit and cockiest smile were juxtaposed with a doll-faced kitty cat dressed in her best finery. Celebrity was not a bad turn of events for two poor, uneducated nobodies from the corner, if you ignored the pain in the neck the crown was fashioning for Mickey. After three grueling weeks of testimony, it was finally judgment day for Mickey and Alex. With one last twist of the knife, Justice George Franklin McFarland delivered a two-hour speech to the jury that heavily favored the Crown's take on the evidence. The judge harped on Mickey's lengthy rap sheet and slagged off the defense's witnesses, editorializing that was largely irrelevant to the current proceedings. Conveniently absent from McFarland's chastisement of Mickey and his corner cohorts, was any mention that John R. Shea was himself such a criminal, one with a bank robbery charge looming over his head to boot. With Justice McFarland's words fresh in their minds, the jury members left the courtroom to decide the fate of Mickey McDonald. In less time than it took to listen to an episode of The Jack Benny Show, they found Alex McDonald not guilty. Mickey was dealt another hand, in spite of the Crown's ham-fisted prosecution, he was found guilty of the murder of James Windsor and sentenced to hang on July 20th, 1939. I'm the victim of a frame-up by the Toronto Police Department, Mickey declared to the courtroom following the verdict. I've been a thief, I'll admit that, but I've never killed a man yet, and I never will. But don't get the idea that I'm a coward, because I'm not, he hastened to add. I'll die, and I'll never say a word, and I hope everyone knows it. Mickey began to cry as his police guards escorted him away. You'll find out why Shay framed me. You'll find out all about it, he shouted. Back behind bars again, Mickey could only sit and stew. 
his cocky smile long since faded, now that the specter of a dangling noose haunted him day and night. His sleepless nights dragged on yet longer, when his hanging was put on hold until the fall, while Frank Regan petitioned the courts for an appeal. In September, Frank Regan sent his protege, Goldwyn Arthur Martin, to argue Mickey's case to the Court of Appeals. Regan knew his own limitations, appellates apparently being one of them, and Martin's knowledge of the brief was second only to his own. Plus, no other attorney in town wanted any part of it. Regan was right to trust the job to Martin. When the young legal assistant rested his case, the appellate judges literally and figuratively applauded him for his clear and concise delivery of the facts. With that single argument, a legal star was born, kick-starting the career of the man who would one day be considered the greatest defense lawyer in Canadian history. With Martin's successful appeal overturning the result of the first trial, Mickey had dodged the hangman's noose, for now. A second trial was set for October 16, 1939. Not so coincidentally, and very much suspiciously, Attorney General Conant also arranged for the trial of the Port Credit robbery to be put on hold until the fall, as if he didn't want a certain witness to testify in the robbery trial before Mickey was counting down the days on death row. If details of Shea's secret deal with the Crown spilled out in the open, it would severely hamper the case against Mickey in the second trial. At the second trial of MacDonald v. Rex, Mickey faced the judge and jury solo. Brother Alex had, understandably, not found his acquittal at the first trial to be a miscarriage of justice worthy of appeal. He had enough on his plate with his other charge for the Port Credit Bank robbery, set to start just days away. When Shea took the stand for a third time to give evidence against his former partner in crime, he delivered the story much as he had done before. This time around, however, Regan was ready to rebut with a cunning strategy all his own. Let the egghead lecture to his heart's content. When Regan pressed Shea on how his second-hand account of the murder was so richly decorated with details like the crying baby, Shea shrugged it off as Mickey giving an exaggerated retelling of the story. After all, Shea continued sagely, he knew what it was like to embroider one's own personal experiences, like, for instance, how he might describe Leo Gautier's gun going off during the poor credit bank robbery as sounding like a cannon. There's a term for that, you know. Poetic license. Shea sat back with the smug satisfaction of a true pedant, knowing that he'd concisely explained a complex concept to a room full of laymen. And everyone in the courtroom did know exactly what he'd meant, and there was an audible gasp at the nakedness of the revelation. Shay had just inadvertently confessed to his involvement in the Port Credit robbery while giving sworn testimony. Do you realize what you're saying? interjected a stunned Justice C. Makins. Isn't this the offense for which you are to be tried next week? Shay sat flabbergasted as he savored the bitter taste of his foot in his mouth. Regan smiled like the cat who caught the mouse, or in this case, the rat. 
His efforts to prove Shea had cut a deal with the Crown were finally bearing fruit. He's admitted his guilt, was Regan's comment. Continuing his cross-examination, Regan read off a description of the second man at the crime scene for the jury, the tallest man with blue eyes and a nickel-plated revolver. The specifics described Shea to a T. But while Shea agreed the description was spot on, he remained adamant that he wasn't there at all. He'd been home at the time of the murder, nursing a drunk friend. Shea's loose lips and flimsy alibi were a boon to Regan's strategic endgame. If he could string along Mickey's trial just a little while longer for the trial of the poor credit bank robbers to begin, the lack of Shea's presence alongside Alec McDonald and Leo Gautier at that trial would be proof positive that Shea was in the Crown's pocket, obliterating any remaining credibility he had as a witness. Regan called Leo Gautier to the stand. Gautier told the jury how a cop had offered him $2,000 and a reduced sentence for information about the murder. Gautier responded, What do you want me to do? Hang four people for $2,000? According to Gautier, the police officer then suggested another $1,000 could probably be arranged to sweeten the deal. Gautier didn't budge. He knew nothing. Well, almost nothing. According to Gautier, all police questions about the murder had been about exactly four men, Mickey McDonald, Alex McDonald, Louis Gallo, and John R. Shea. It was one criminal's word against another. Time for Regan to turn the tables on the prosecution's squeaky-clean eyewitnesses. The Windsor family each took the stand one by one to identify Mickey as Jimmy's killer. But when it came to the third and fourth men, their story still didn't add up. Lorraine Brommel, Windsor's girlfriend, wasn't sure if Louis Gallo was there, even though there was a record of her asking him to step forward during the police lineup. The man she saw had a mustache, and Louis Gallo hadn't had one at the lineup two weeks after the murder. Edith Warner, Windsor's sister, had picked out Gallo in photographs and definitely pinned him as an accomplice. Why wasn't Louis Gallo also being tried, demanded Regan. He wanted the court to subpoena the man and even went so far as to read out his home address to the courtroom. If you want him so badly, the Crown Prosecutor retorted, you go out and get him. And as for the third man described in the newspaper... Suddenly, no one had seen that third man at all. Previously, Edith Warner had said she saw a man in the dining room, but now claimed that she had just miscounted. And what of the detailed descriptions of this third man in the newspapers that had been based solely on eyewitnesses' description of the killers immediately after the murder? The Crown had an answer for that too, albeit an extremely clunky one. They brought in Detective Sergeant Glasscock, who'd taken the witnesses' statements at the scene to claim that he'd simply made up the description of the third man all on his own. An overactive imagination, nothing more. Not a very tidy way to explain how an entire figure can be seen by witnesses at the murder scene and then disappear from their collective memories at the trial. 
Shay's story, and the Crown's case against Mickey along with it, was unraveling. Regan just had to keep tugging at the fraying edges. John McDermott and Edward Warner, Jimmy Windsor's brothers-in-law, both told the same tale of how the family had ID'd Mickey at the police lineup, but kept silent out of fear of the accused overhearing them. Though eyewitness evidence has never been ironclad, in the early 20th century, police lineups were still considered the cutting edge of scientific police methods used to secure impartial identifications of suspects, and there were protocols in place to keep them impartial. One at a time, witnesses were asked to identify the murderers to ensure that they were not allowed to discuss their observations and influence each other. But because the witnesses had been sequestered together in the same house, that's exactly what happened. How could the jury be positive that one family member hadn't convinced the others to choose the wrong man? Or worse, how could the jury be sure the police hadn't helped sway them to come to that decision? The fact of the matter is, they couldn't. And that was, as Regan was quick to point out, the very definition of reasonable doubt. Finally, Mickey took the stand in his own defense. He looked plaintively at the jury. I've never killed a man in my life, he told them, emotion quivering in his voice. John Shea framed me because he thought he'd been double-crossed over the poor credit bank robbery. Meanwhile, in a courtroom in Brampton, Leo Gautier and Alex MacDonald watched in shock, but maybe not that much shock, as their buddy John R. Shea took the stand, not as a fellow poor credit bank robbing accomplice, but as a material witness for the Crown. The robber's defense team immediately began singing Frank Regan's old refrain, Shea had cut a deal for immunity. There could be no denying it now. But a stubborn Shay tried to all the same. No, 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 cried Shay on the stand. It wasn't like that at all. He swore up and down that he hadn't made a deal with the police. He was just as surprised as anyone when he'd arrived at the Brampton courthouse that morning, prepared to plead not guilty. This despite his public admission to his involvement in the robbery made under oath in Toronto 13 days earlier. He claimed he'd been informed he was not going to be prosecuted for the poor credit robbery, but instead made to give evidence against his fellow robbers. But without making a bargain in advance, how could the Crown have known Shea would sell out his pals the morning of the trial? Mental telepathy suggested the defense? Nothing so fantastical as that. After all, Shea had already tried to sell Alex MacDonald down the river for murder last May. There was no bargain made, Shea told everyone one last time, a broken record utterance that might make one think that perhaps he doth protest too much. Back in Toronto at the Windsor murder trial, the call came in with the news that Shea was going to walk for the port credit robbery just as Regan had suspected he would. It was good news for Shay, sure, but serendipitous news for Regan and Mickey, too. The nightmare scenario that Attorney General Conant had tried so hard to avoid was happening. Shay's plea deal was now out in the open, and Regan would use it to discredit the prosecution's star witness and get Mickey off the hook for murder. 
Regan had outwitted and outlasted the crown and the puppet master himself, Attorney General Gordon Conant. In the longest address to the jury in Canadian history, a whopping five hours and forty minutes, Regan went over and over and over every detail that could have been affected by a deal made by Shea. He pointed an accusing finger directly at Gordon Conant, the only man in Ontario with the power to delay the poor credit bank robbery case, and the only one who could cut a deal for immunity with a potential murderer in a murder case. This case smells to high heaven, declared Regan. Why did the Attorney General attend this trial as a spectator? Why did he attend the first trial twice and the appeal once? I suggest that he's the only man who can direct that charges against Shea be dropped. To all this, Gordon Conant later added, no comment. Indeed, that has been the province's position on the matter to this very day, as the records of John Shea's immunity deal have been sealed under lock and key far away from public scrutiny. Will they ever see the light of day? That's a bet we wouldn't take. While the jury deliberated, criminals and cops alike milled around the outside of the courthouse, waiting to be the first to hear the news of a verdict. Whenever Kitty Cat passed a lawman, she raised her crossed fingers high in the air, a prayer and a demand for her husband's freedom. In the end, the jury in the second trial of Mickey McDonald for the murder of James Windsor took eight and a half hours to reach their verdict. Not guilty. So Mickey McDonald walked for the murder of James Windsor. It may not have reflected the events as they actually happened at 247 Briar Hill Avenue on the night of January 7, 1939, but it was the verdict that accurately reflected the Crown's flawed, imperfect case, reliant as it was on the flawed, imperfect testimony of flawed, imperfect witnesses. Nevertheless, Justice Makins was not pleased. He called Mickey Ford to warn him how lucky he was to be acquitted of such a serious crime he might very well have committed. But Mickey was done listening. He was untouchable. Oh boy, honey, he exclaimed to Kitty Cat as he jubilantly burst from the courtroom. A quick telephone call relayed the news of Mickey's acquittal to the Brampton Courthouse, where Mickey's brother Alex and Leo Gautier were about to learn their fates in the poor credit bank robbery trial. The news of Mickey's acquittal buoyed their spirits, and they sailed into the Brampton courtroom on sunshine and smiles. Forty minutes later, however, as the jury foreman announced their verdict, it was clear that Mickey was the charmed McDonald brother, leaving none of the luck for brother Alex. He and Gautier were convicted of robbing the Port Credit Bank of Commerce and for the shooting of Ray Bryant. They were each given two ten-year sentences in stir. As for John R. Shea, he was scot-free, immune from prosecution for his definite involvement in the Port Credit Bank robbery and any possible involvement he might have had in the Jimmy Windsor murder. Shea was a smart egg who'd used the system to beat the system and save his own hide. Whether he was actually one of the four men at the scene of the Windsor murder might never be known, but after he sold out his pals, there was no safe place left for him in Toronto. You can bet wherever he disappeared to, 
he spent the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. In spite of his exoneration in the James Windsor murder case, Mickey wasn't able to dodge prison entirely. He was placed back into police custody and transported to Kingston Penitentiary to serve time for the robbery and assault against James C. Elder. While in lockup, Mickey had plenty of time to reflect on his life's journey and the people he'd met along the way. His conclusion? They were rats. There was no other way to phrase it. Even when they weren't out there ratting you out, they were still just rats looking out for themselves, and he was married to one. Sure, Kitty Cat had stuck by him through both murder trials, but she'd also snitched on a number of gangland heavyweights like John the Bug Brown for tearing up her apartment in late 1938. Now, Mickey wasn't what you might call a paragon of morality, but he had certain principles he lived by. For a man who'd once perjured himself and done time for refusing to admit he'd witnessed Big Bill Cook shooting himself in the leg, turning stooly was a step too far. Meanwhile, on the outside, Kitty Cat had problems of her own. Without Mickey around, she needed another meal ticket. She cozied up to other men who could take care of her and help her out with the new habit she'd picked up. Heroin. When Mickey got out of pen in 1940, he faced a tough choice. Stick by Kitty Cat and be labeled as a rat by association, or drop her and keep his title as Gangland's most famous criminal. He chose to stay notorious. Mickey got himself out of Toronto and headed westward over the Rockies to about as far as he could go without finding himself neck deep in the Pacific Ocean, the city of Vancouver. Mickey found, however, that he couldn't outrun his own reputation. The V-Town cops had been tipped off about their notorious visitor by Toronto police and laid out the welcome mat. He was picked up the moment he hit town. There wasn't much they could hold him on, but they wanted to send the message to Mickey that his criminal ways would not be tolerated on the West Coast. It didn't matter much anyway. Mickey was only able to stomach the mountainous vistas and Pacific breezes for so long. He'd left his heart in Hogtown, and by the spring of 1941, he was back in Toronto with a new squeeze, Kay Donovan, in tow. The couple took up residence at 514 Young Street, though Mickey was still married to Kitty Cat. But when had Mickey ever been concerned about the law? Like a death sentence, marriage was just some words muttered over you by a judge, and Mickey had dodged both just fine. Being traded in for a new, younger model did not sit well with Kitty Cat. Cats are territorial creatures, and she was no different. She sat and stewed every day in the White Spot restaurant. That's right, the same eatery operated by the late Jimmy Windsor, a short walk away from Mickey's new love nest, bad-mouthing the new girl to anyone who would and anyone who wouldn't listen. The booze and the dope didn't help her mood, and the hard-boiled kitty cat would frequently pick fights with men in uniform. With Mickey's return to Toronto came a return to his bad old ways. On December 23, 1942, Mickey earned himself another dubious moniker, the Mad Dog of Jarvis Street, when he and a pal named Joe Hill attempted to force their way into the ladies' beverage room at the Royal Cecil Hotel. 
a flophouse on the corner, whose heyday had been in the reign of Queen Victoria. No score here for Mickey. He and Hill were just a bunch of hooligans spoiling for a fight. The ensuing brawl lasted over 20 minutes, climaxing with Mickey pushing the hotel's 86-year-old doorman, William Old Bill Blair, to the ground and repeatedly kicking him. When the judge denied Mickey bail for his latest fit of unhinged violence, Mickey declared he'd have gotten better treatment from Hitler. Mickey weaseled out of the charge when Mike Rodel, a stevedore, took the fall for Old Bill's assault. A year later came Mickey's next big scheme. On the morning of December 13, 1943, just after dawn, a Western Freight Lines tractor-trailer filled to bursting with 600 cases of whiskey and gin rumbled along Wellington Street. It pulled into the Western Freight Yard and reversed to a stop at the freight depot. While he waited for the depot employees to clock in for the day, the truck's driver, George Butcher, began to nod off. It had been a long overnight drive from Chatham. Butcher was jerked awake by the driver's side door being thrown open. The bleary-eyed Butcher stared down a trio of men and their trio of automatics, all pointed at him. One of the thieves gestured for Butcher to exit the truck's cabin, Butcher obliged. The three gunmen marched him to a car parked on Windsor Street, gagged him, and shoved him onto the floor of the back seat. One of the thieves climbed behind the wheel of the truck and drove it out of the freight yard, meeting up with the two cars, each holding its fair share of criminal passengers. The convoy and its $28,000 cargo of booze, worth more than twice as much on the black market, made its way out of the city. The convoy drove ten miles northeast to the Lazy L Ranch, a riding school in the village of Weston. The L might very well have stood for lunkheads, because it was at this point that the plan went predictably sideways. The ranch was owned by James Shorting, who'd been approached by masterminds Benedetto Benizanelli and Sam Mancuso to use his barn in the scheme. Shorting was told they were just looking to store a delivery truck with a few cases of Christmas cheer. They offered him $20, along with two cases of booze, for use of the barn, and an extra $5 for hay to disguise the hall. Shorting had eagerly agreed. On the morning of the heist, Shorting watched as these klutzy criminals drove their convoy along Richview Road towards the Lazy L and then pulled into the wrong driveway, that of Shorting's nosy landlady, Kathleen Jackson. It was at that moment that Shorting began to get the sinking feeling that he might have undercharged. Once the hijackers found the right address of the Lazy L, they decided to stow the truck, cargo and all, in the second-story loft of the ranch's barn. When they attempted to back the tractor-trailer up the ramp to the loft, they put a little too much pedal to the metal, and the truck flew up the ramp. The thieves, however, had failed to account for certain variables, like gravity, and the truck busted through the loft's wooden floor, sending it crashing down to the ground floor below and overturning it in the process. Now, some wags might say that an experienced band of professional thieves should have known better than to park a truck with 17 tons of fragile cargo on the second floor of a rickety barn, 
but no armchair Arsene Lupins, no fair-weather Fagans are we. These were criminals, after all, not physicists. They stole because they were uneducated, not in spite of it. Shorting watched in horror as the hijackers began frantically unloading the remainder of the 7,200 bottles of booze that had not broken from the upturned truck, wondering how on earth he was going to explain how an inverted tractor-trailer had ended up in his barn, let alone how to extricate it. As six gangsters toiled away, frantically stashing their stash, the car where George Butcher was still being held captive stood nearby. One of the thieves, Bill Basket, was on reluctant guard duty. Feeling the bite of the brisk country air, Basket had a deep yearning for a nip of something to warm him up, but none of his fellow thieves were within earshot. Necessity being the mother of invention, Basket drew his gun, pointed it to the sky, and squeezed off a shot to catch the attention of the other thieves. Say what you will, it worked. When his criminal confreres ran over to see what the fuss was all about, Basket informed them he needed some whiskey. Shorting, also running over, was shocked, but maybe not that shocked, to see a gagged man sitting in the back seat of the car. Basket waved his gun at Shorting, telling him to keep his nose out of where it didn't belong, or Basket would blow his brains out. Shorting retreated back to the barn. He could feel that sinking feeling return. Being knee-deep in a hijacking was one thing, but now he was neck-deep in a kidnapping. His mind raced for a way to get himself out of this mess, but, as he looked at the truck lying limply in the barn, he knew there was nothing to be done. He would have to just keep his trap shut and wait it out. A man in a tan overcoat, who hadn't lift a finger to move the bottles up to that point, stalked into the barn and grabbed a whiskey bottle from the truck. The man wrapped a fist around the screw top and gave it a twist. Without breaking stride, he flung the metal cap into the corner of the barn and took a swig straight from the bottle. As he walked out of the barn, he shot Shorting a menacing look, and Shorting got a good gander at him. It was a face he'd seen somewhere before, but couldn't place a name to. "'Hey, Mickey!' called out one of the thieves. "'Why don't you wait until after?' The man ignored the question and kept on walking. Mickey. A shiver of terror ran through Shorting. Mickey McDonald. Mickey the Mad Dog of Jarvis Street McDonald. Yes, Shorting told himself, he should definitely keep his trap shut. Soon after the hooch was unloaded, the thieves piled back into their cars. The convoy roared back to life and rounded to make its way back up the dusty path to the main road. Shorting allowed himself a deep sigh of relief as he watched the cars disappear into the distance. He turned back to the barn. Now he just had to figure out a way to get that damn truck out of there. Several miles down the road, George Butcher was wondering pitifully what the next stage of this ordeal would bring. He didn't have to wait long. One of the thieves flung the car door open, and a heavy shove launched Butcher out of the car. He landed on the ground and rolled to the bottom of a roadside ditch. Picking himself up, he walked down the road to the first phone he could find. By 9 a.m., Toronto police had the lowdown on the whole business. Without even knowing any of the suspects' names, Toronto police detectives John Nimmo and Edmund Tong 
made a beeline to the Young Street apartment of Mickey McDonald. Their hunch paid off. Inside Mickey's apartment, they found a symposium of the hijackers taking place in the living room. Mickey shrugged it off, saying, It was a family gathering. In a way, it was. The trigger-happy Bill Basket was Mickey's brother-in-law. Also present, both at the hijacking and the apartment, was Edwin McDonald, Mickey's 18-year-old kid brother. Needless to say, Nemo and Tong were not convinced. They put a kibosh on the clambake and hauled the whole lot of them down to headquarters. Mickey's personal life was also taking a dive along with his professional life. After 13 years of being Mickey's metaphorical and literal punching bag, Kitty Cat finally gave up on reconciling their relationship and filed for divorce from Mickey in 1944. She would later say that their marriage was the unluckiest 13 years fate ever dealt anybody. And for the hard life that she'd lived, that was saying something. The last time Kitty Cat saw Mickey was through sheer coincidence, but almost contrived in its symbolism. Kitty Cat had been picked up on a bootlegging charge and she was brought to a cell at Toronto Police Jail. In the adjoining cell was Mickey, cooling his heels for the liquor truck hijacking. Fate had brought them together all those years ago in the kitchen of Kitty Cat's parents' house. Thirteen years later, fate brought them together again as two battered and broken jailbirds, unable to escape each other, but always pushed apart. If fate exists at all, then fate is a trickster and a poet. As ever, Mickey did his best to weasel out of facing the music, but every judge in town already knew his shtick. In three different hearings, Mickey loudly declared the case to be a frame-up, and three different magistrates denied him bail. When Mickey and four of the other bootleggers were finally hauled in front of Judge James Parker for hijacking and kidnapping, he did his best to convince the jury he'd been sick in bed, an alibi backed by Kay Donovan. The rest of the evidence, including eyewitness testimony from Shorting, his 17-year-old farmhand Howard Wilkinson, and the son-in-law of Kathleen Jackson, aforementioned nosy landlady, suggested otherwise. For his part in the hijacking, Mickey was found guilty. Judge Parker handed him a sentence of 15 years in Portsmouth Penitentiary. That's just what I expect from a parasite like you, was Mickey's rejoinder. After a decade of trying, the Canadian justice system had finally succeeded in sending Mickey away for a good chunk of time. But if Mickey's criminal career has taught us anything, it was that a little lockup wasn't enough to keep the old boy down. He appealed and earned a second trial, but the result was the same, 15 years in pen. From his prison cell, Mickey watched V.E. and V.J. Day come and go and plotted his next doomed scheme, a second bout at matrimony. On the afternoon of April 10th, 1946, Kay Donovan arrived at Portsmouth Penitentiary and was brought to the warden's office where Reverend H.J. Bell and Warden Allen were waiting. The signal was given to bring Mickey down from his cell. Flanked by two guards and with the warden's desk acting as the altar, Kay and Mickey tied the knot. At the end of the ceremony, Mickey gave his new bride a kiss and was led back to his cell. 
It was the last time she would ever lay eyes on her husband again. By 1947, Mickey had served two years of his 15-year sentence, but he was already itching for a change in scenery. On Monday, August 18th, Mickey escaped from Portsmouth along with two other prisoners. Mickey had the name recognition, but his two fellow felons had done more than enough to earn their prison stripes. Ulysses Lausanne was considered the most dangerous of the three, having masterminded the biggest bank heist in Canadian history up to that time, the $330,000 robbery of a bank in Bath, Ontario. The third man in the crew was a small-time Ottawa crook named Nicholas Minnelli, destined to become a mere footnote in the escapades of Mickey McDonald, despite the memorable embellishment of having his own initials tattooed on his chin. Sizing up the escapees, Wade Allen, a Portsmouth guard, quipped, If you see Lausanne, shoot. If you see McDonald, shout. Lausanne's deadly. McDonald's dopey. Nevertheless, it was Mickey who still got the bulk of the ink with the absconded trio dubbed Mickey and Pals by the newspapers. The three had escaped using tried-and-true methods of prison break along with some novel bits of arts and crafts G-Wizardry added in. Hacksaws secreted to them from the outside helped them cut through the three-quarter-inch steel bars of their cells. To scale the prison walls, they fashioned a crude rope from short lengths of nylon cord collected over months through their work in the prison's mailroom. A five-hour head start was bought with the fabrication of life-size dummies that tricked their guards into believing that the three men were sound asleep in their cells. Under cover of night, the three men exited their cells through the opening in the sawed-off cell bars. Replacing the bars, they scurried along the catwalk to a stairwell that brought them up to the prison's attic. A hatch on the ceiling gave them access to the roof, and they lowered themselves down to the courtyard using the homemade rope. A hook attached to the rope allowed them to climb the 30-foot wall on the prison's northeast corner. Their last obstacle was a barbed wire fence, which the desperate men scaled with ease. They stole a car from a nearby house and were miles away before their escape was discovered five hours later. The prison break of three hardened thieves had bank managers across Ontario shaking in their wingtips. They had every reason to be scared. Instead of making a beeline for the border, Mickey and Ulysses joined forces to make a dynamic bank-robbing duo. They knocked over a bank in Long Branch, netting a cool $4,000, and paused briefly in Lausanne's old stomping grounds of Windsor, Ontario, for one last parting shot to the Great White North. The hometown boy made bad by holding up a Royal Bank of Canada branch, ably assisted by Mickey MacDonald. This is a stick-up, Mickey shouted as he lifted a Tommy gun out of his coat. The pair then lined the employees and customers up against the wall and stripped the bank of whatever cash they could lay their hands on. The score was a sizable $40,000. Police roadblocks were set up throughout the city, but they could not ferret out the bandits. Their getaway car was found abandoned later that day. Its two occupants had slithered through the police dragnet. 
This sudden splurge of sin led to the creation of Canada's most wanted list by the RCMP. And who rocketed up the charts to claim top spot on the inaugural list? None other than Mickey McDonald, number one with a gun. The added fame of being Canada's most wanted criminal, however, did not result in Mickey's capture. His fellow fugitives, Ulysses Lausanne and Nicholas Minnelli, were both rooted out a year later in the U.S. Ulysses' odyssey ended in Pasquagoula, Mississippi, when he was cornered by local police in a swamp. His bullet-riddled body was carried out of that swamp. Minnelli made it all the way to the West Coast and was arrested in Oakland, California, trying to rob a bank. He was quickly extradited back to Canada. End of Mickey? In 1950, his trail went cold. Underworld whispers had him setting up a drug trafficking ring in the U.S. That same scuttlebutt had him taking a dirt nap in a shallow grave, betrayed by the same gangsters or elbowed out by a rival gang. Either way, these were American heavies who didn't just throw punches, but threw bullets too. It was a possible scenario given the seed money Mickey and Lozal made off with in their last-minute withdrawals from the Canadian banks, probable, too, given Mickey's big mouth and his bent for being bad at crime. Make no mistake, the criminal recounted here was not some Moriarty-esque mastermind. If a master criminal is someone who gets away with it, Mickey McDonald was the exact opposite because he never got away with anything. He just, in his own bullish way, did a lot of crime. Even when he was acquitted of the murder of James Windsor, Mickey remained a prisoner of his own primal impulses, his insatiable thirst for drugs, drink, and women, and his own uncontrollable rage. Whatever gains he'd make in a big score were quickly unmade in a drunken fistfight. The simple life was never in the cards for Mickey McDonald. Silence was the best indication that Mickey met an early demise. The only thing that could keep him away from a life of crime was the grave. Perhaps it is just as well that Mickey faded away when he did. His brand of criminality, the neighborhood bruiser and bootlegger, had been in vogue in the 1930s and was beginning to feel nostalgic even in the 1940s. Mickey would have been a woeful anachronism in the ensuing decades when big American crime syndicates began their takeover of the illegal industries in Ontario. Mickey McDonald, agent of chaos, would never fit into that kind of tightly controlled outfit. With Mickey out of the picture permanently, his brothers, Alex and Edwin, carried the criminal torch well into the 1960s, expanding into counterfeit currency and heroin trafficking to the same level of success as their dear departed brother. Alex became a drug kingpin in Vancouver before dying of a heart attack in 1966 at 44 years old. At one point, little Eddie even reached the same notorious heights as Mickey, briefly joining Canada's Most Wanted in 1956 after jumping bail on a narcotics charge. Kay Donovan moved on with her life and disavowed Mickey entirely, never mentioning his name to any of her friends. As for Kitty Cat, 
Well after Mickey disappeared from the corner, she could still be seen haunting the bars in the darkened streets of the old neighborhood, searching for a warm drink or warm John, until she too dissolved into the same ether that had swallowed up Mickey. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's Darker Side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. The authors of this podcast would like to give special thanks to the late Peter McSherry, whose book, What Happened to Mickey? The Life and Death of Donald Mickey McDonald, Public Enemy Number 1, helped inform much of the content of this episode. His first-hand interviews with members of Toronto's gangland made him one of the preeminent chroniclers of the Toronto underworld in the early 20th century. An adaptation of this story by Supertel first appeared in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned for the third season of Mississauga Confidential, coming in October 2022. Until next time, dear listener, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.